In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today I am joined by the great Shannon McCaffrey, my former AP Statehouse colleague at the Associated Press's Atlanta Capitol Bureau, and now a super highfalutin editor of what is your exact title? Oh, God, what is my exact title? I think I'm senior editor for Hot Topics these days. And she's also um, going to be featured on a, a, a podcast you might have heard of called Breakdown that will be debuting not so long from now, right? Yep. We will have our trailer uh, for the new season starting um, September 3rd, and we'll be launching the podcast later that month. So stay tuned. We'll have uh, news soon about what new trial we'll be covering. Well, we brought Shannon into this conversation about Senator Johnny Isaacson because in a past life, as I mentioned, she was the Capitol correspondent, the main go-to person in the the Associated Press's uh, Atlanta Bureau for all things political, and you covered Johnny Isaacson. So uh, I got your Slack message a couple hours or a couple minutes after after the story broke that Johnny Isaacson was stepping down, and you were basically like, "Holy crap!" Yeah, I mean, he everyone has known that he's going to you know step down eventually. He's got bad health and he's older, but I don't know. It still shocked me. How did you find out about it? Did he? Did you get early word that this was happening? Not exactly. We got I got about a maybe five minute heads up that it was happening, not from the Isaacson camp, but just from other sources. I was at a, um, a Metro Atlanta Chamber conference uh, at, the, at SunTrust Stadium up in Cobb County, and it was full of politicians, Democrats, Republicans, operatives, executives. Um, Burt Roten, our former managing <laughs> editor, happened to be there, too. Alex, wow, they were really pulling people out of retirement. Yeah, huh? Alex Taylor, the company CEO, is there. So a lot of folks were there. And I'm kind of standing in the back talking to someone, and a source comes up to me right as my phone just blows up with five text messages at the same time and says, I hope your phone's fully charged. You've got a giant story. And I hadn't even looked at my phone yet and seen all the text messages. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, something big's about to happen. I glance at my phone and I scrammed. I dropped everything, got my computer loaded up, wrote the prep story, texted Isaacson um, aides and said, hey, I know what you're about to say. Um, I've got the story ready, had it ready. And then basically uh, the moment that they were ready to put the news out, because I didn't know exactly what was going to happen or else I probably would have gone with it even a little earlier. But the moment uh, they confirmed it, pressed the button and holy cow. 
It was like a thunderclap in Georgia politics. It, I saw that pop up, and it just it, it rocked me because you immediately think about him, but then you think about what this means right now for Georgia in this coming season, which was already a huge season. So now you've got, I mean, it, it's just going to be header. gangbusters, crazy. Yeah. And before we get to the political implications, let's talk more about Senator Isaacson because the reason this was so shocking, everyone, he had made it very clear um, before his 2016 re-election to the third term that he had Parkinson's disease and he you could see his struggles he was in a wheelchair often near the uh, near the end of uh, uh, you know the, in the last few years but his work ethic was kind of unmatched yeah anyone who saw him could see that he wasn't the same guy I mean that he was f- much frailer but you know he was always always there he was always you know you, you would still see him at events you would still see him on the senate floor I mean he he's that guy who's just uh you know always there, always smiling, even when he's feeling pretty miserable. And that's why every time these rumors floated up, and they've been floating up back and forth, you know, up forever. and down forever, I mean, right? I think when I was covering him 10 years ago, there yeah. was talk about him retiring. Exactly. Maybe. And so whenever they would they would kind of bubble up, you know, we'd make our checks, but this, we, we kind of learned to kind of dismiss them because he's the chair of two committees. Um, he is He's a lifer in D.C. He's always at, and when he's back in Atlanta, he is all over Georgia mm-hmm. at, t- at different meetings and talking to rotary clubs and chambers of commerce. And he's just very, very busy. And so every time we'd go to one of his aides or one of his operatives or or, or one of his deputies about the latest rumor, they'd, they'd kind of sniff, you know, dismiss it. And even even beyond that, I was at the Republican Conve- State Convention in May and folks were handing out Johnny Isaacson 2022 stickers. So they, <laughs> they were trying to we we knew that that was going to happen, but they were kind of floating even a fourth term for the for the seventy four year old senator, yeah, and he, I mean, he's still feisty too. I mean, what was it what was it about two months ago that he went after Trump? You know, he he basically chastised Trump for going after McCain. So he wasn't just marking his time. I mean, he was still he was still pushing things up there, and you know, really um, engaged in the process. And his statement, and he's spoken with with AJC uh, columnist Jim Galloway, political insider Jim Galloway, and so you'll you'll find more of what he said in tomorrow's jolt as well as Sunday's newspaper, but um, his quote in his statement was it was really emotional. You could really tell this how how difficult of a decision this was. And it was it reads like this. It goes against every fiber of my being to leave in the middle of my Senate term, but I know it's the right thing to do on behalf of my state. Yeah, and you can hear him saying that. I can hear him saying his voice saying that. So, and it wasn't, and it wasn't just Parkinson's, although that made him, um, you know, that that c- severely complicated his life, and he mm-hmm. it contributed to different falls and different accidents he's had. But um, just just on Monday, he had kidney surgery to remove a growth on his kidney. So I think that, well, I'm sure that factored into that decision as well. And you talk about someone who's a cornerstone of. Georgia Republican politics. I mean, someone who, who, who was elected in his twenties to the state house, to the state legislature at a time when there was barely two dozen Republicans in the Capitol. Yeah, I mean, he was a Republican in Georgia before it was cool to be a Republican in Georgia. And unlike a lot of the other state politicians, unlike a lot of the Republican establishment in the state, he was a Republican from the beginning. Um, you know, a lot of the others, Nathan Deal, other folks, Sonny Purdue. Sonny Purdue, you know, all changed, you know, when the political winds shifted. He was a Republican from the beginning. That's a great point. He was the first Georgia Republican ever to be elected to a third term in the Senate. And he's the only Georgian ever to have been elected to the state house, the state Senate, 
U.S. House and U.S. Senate. That's 40 years. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, I was remembering back um, when, I think it was when he first ran and it was his unsuccessful race for the Senate, he was pro-choice back then. So while he's always been a Republican, he's been a different kind of Republican. I mean, his own views have evolved, even if his party has stayed the same. Jim Galloway and Tamar Hallerman had a great story in in, um, Thursday's edition of the AJC. They took a look back at his legacy and they noted that He's one of those bridge builders, a consensus maker who, who even 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 now when it's not cool to be a bridge builder in the Republican Party where you can be attacked as a rhino and you can be attacked as someone who's too conciliatory toward Democrats. He was someone who always kind of proudly stood up and said, yeah, I, I, I will work across party lines. I will make friends on the other side of do the you, aisle. Do you think, having covered him recently, do you think that contributed at all to him leaving? Do you think he just found that the party no longer had as much room for people like him? Was that a factor at all? I think he was perturbed by it. I don't think it was a factor. He wasn't, um, you know, like so many senators who wrote op-eds in the New York Times the day they left saying, I'm leaving because the Senate is, is no longer working. He, he, he did lament the fact that there was such partisanship. But also, you got to remember, he was the chair of two committees that did get things done. One of them That's being true. the Veterans Committee, where there was a lot of bipartisan action with, with Democrats. And you could see in you had all the, you know, the, 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 the statements from Republicans you'd expect saying he was a great leader. But what it struck us is all the statements from Democrats who just bent over backwards to talk about what a great person and colleague he was. And they seemed actually authentic as opposed to just being, um, you know, a, a necessary statement that somebody needs to put out. You could you could feel like there was some actual emotion behind that. I mean, Chuck Schumer had something nice to say about him, right? I mean, oh, yeah. the, the majority, the minor, minority Senator leader. Early, yeah. <laughs> and I keep on slipping into past tense. And we should note he's not retiring until the end of the year. He is going back up to the Capitol in uh, in September, and he's going to have a a four month sort of not farewell tour, but he'll there'll be a lot of time for for folks to up in Washington to say their goodbyes to him. But he's not done yet, and he said in his statement that he intends to to work to find a cure to Parkinson's, which is which is the syndrome he suffers from. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it it uh, makes me wonder if he will have anything. Any anything to sort of cap his career in these next four months? Has he mentioned anything about, I mean, beyond Parkinson's, is there anything sort of undone that he wants to do? That's a great point. In Parkinson's, he thinks he's going to focus on after he leaves office. Mm-hmm. I think before he leaves office, really, what, what, what has been the main infrastructure problem uh, uh, challenge for, for Republicans and Democrats in Washington? It's been the Savannah port. Mm-hmm. So I think he's going to really push, make his final push to get Republicans and Democrats aligned to give the Savannah port dredging more funding. And it's been, you know, we're talking about an issue that's gone on for years too. And there's, yeah. there's all sorts of fraught considerations because South Carolina has, has its priorities and other ports. It's very, it's very competitive, but I think he wants to make this one of his last, uh, last, one of his last things. You know, it's funny. I was remembering when, um, this happened, I was remembering back when I covered him, I covered, um, Saxby Chambliss's, re-election campaign that went into a runoff. This was, I think it was 2008. Yeah. And um, so... Saxby was always having trouble. People just didn't like him. Republican voters always felt like he wasn't quite authentic. He wasn't quite the real thing. He and Johnny voted exactly the same on almost every issue. And yet 
the same voters loved Johnny and hated Saxby. And it was just something about his personality. I, I don't even know if you could put a finger on it, but, but it was something about his manner, his way of doing things that just made him likable to people. And we saw that even in the most polarizing election of many of our lifetimes, which was 2016, Hillary Clinton versus, versus Donald Trump. Donald Trump wins the state by 50% of the vote, you know, by, mm-hmm. by five points over Hillary Clinton because there was third-party candidates. But Senator Isaacson wins with 55% of the vote. He outperformed Donald Trump by five points and did much better among Democrats and African-American voters in particular because of that. And partly the other factor is Democrats couldn't find anyone to run against him. He's that popular. Democrats had to had to find a, a, a unheard of businessman named Jim Barksdale because no one else wanted to run against Johnny Isaacson. He had that sterling of a reputation. Yeah, I was just trying to remember the name of the guy who ran against him, and that is the... With the beret, yep, the, the that's hats, it. Yeah. Yep, yep. No, it was, it was like no one wants to run against Johnny Isaacson. He's, it, it's pretty much a sacrificial election if you're going to do that. Well, no one wanted to run against him, but it seems like just about everyone wants to run for that spot. And <laughs> we've got a double header. We've already have the Senator Purdue race. That one's kind of well-established now. We've got three candidates now as of this week. So that was another big development this week. It was going to be one of our main our main focuses of today's conversation. Sarah Riggs Amico, the runner-up for lieutenant governor last year, she formally announced on Tuesday that she's getting in the race against Senator Purdue. That makes her former Columbus Mayor Teresa Tomlinson and Clarkston Mayor Ted Terry are the three uh, contenders for that race. And it's likely that John Ossoff will also jump in that race. No word yet from his camp, but so you could have at least three candidates, maybe four or five in that race. But then switch over to the wild card race of, of the Isaacson contest. And there's 20 or so names that I listed in the blog just today. So you have to explain to, to listeners how this actually works, because I was trying to explain it to my daughter last night and it was near impossible. Um, so explain how this whole primary, non-primary, jungle primary works. The best way to say it is a free for all. Candidates from all parties will be on the same ballot. So rather than a, a party primary in May or, or, or June hashing out who, who each party's nominee is going to be and then six months for them to fight, fight, duke it out, this is going to be everyone's going to be on the same ballot in November. So ridiculously high turnout because it's a presidential election. It could mean that more moderate centrist candidates do better who would get pounded in a, in a, in a runoff, in a primary, who would never survive a primary, but in a general election with lots of with lots of candidates and lots more voters, they could do better. There's a lot of there's a lot of strategy around that, but basically we could have. I'll put it this way: the last federal special election we had was the famous six district race in 2017. That's right. Guess how many candidates got in that race? Oh, twelve. Eighteen. Oh yeah. Eighteen. <laughs> and and of those, you're talking like you know a lot of fringe candidates, but maybe like a half dozen or six to eight who are credible candidates, who right. are legitimate candidates with money behind them. So. We'll have a Republican appointed uh, a, a Republican appointed by Governor Kemp, who will be on that ballot in twenty. Um, we could also have other Republicans who may not like Governor Kemp's appointment, and then we'll have who knows how many Democrats. The party could try to clear the field and anoint someone, um, but you could still have multiple strong Democratic candidates. And the game is, it's very unlikely it could happen. It's very unlikely anyone will get fifty percent plus one, the majority vote you need to avoid a runoff. So we're talking about a January fifth. 2021 runoff to decide Georgia's second Senate seat. So you basically can't take vacation for a year. That's is that I, what you're thinking? That's what we put on Twitter. Yeah. I don't know how we're gonna, <laughs> what we're going to do, but we have we have a lot of work cut out for us. And and specifically, that will be 
Think about it. That's, that's over New Year's and Christmas. It's going to be nuts. So if I'm a Democrat and I'm thinking, all right, I have these two races I can choose between because I could I could choose to run against Senator Purdue or I could choose to throw my hat into this crazy free-for-all race. What what makes the decision for me? What's the benefit or, or, or you know, negative of getting into one or the other? Well, for Democrats, the the – the gut reaction is go for the open seat or the it won't be open, but go for the Kemp appointed seat because David Perdue is a known quantity, but you know, he has a voting record that, that the three or four candidates in that race can attack. So you know where his weaknesses are, but you also know his strengths, which is he can raise a crap ton of money. I mean, he can just raise a ton of money. He has the full support of the White House. He has the full support of of a very powerful Purdue family network that is the dominant political family in, in Georgia. And he has the full support of Brian Kemp. And so you've got, you've got those going for you. So we, what they don't know is who, who the hell Brian Kemp is going to appoint. And right. he could go very, a lot of different directions. And you know, like he's got a, a small galaxy of Republican officials to, to pick. He's got current and former lawmakers, executive officials, members of the judiciary, federal prosecutors. I mean, Think about it. Business people, he's got all sorts of an array of different people. He could go conventional and go with someone like Congressman D- Doug Collins, who you know represents the, the the beating heart of Republican Georgia. Gainesville. Gainesville, where something like 40% of Republican primary voters come from that district up in North Georgia. So you, and he's very close to Trump. So if you want to turn out the base, you could go with someone like him or Jeff Duncan or, or another Republican rising star. Or you could go and go with someone outside the box who would who would better appeal to, to white suburban women who have bolted the party in, in the last two elections and really given Democrats a foothold in the metro Atlanta suburbs where this race could be won or lost. So you know Kemp probably better than just about any other reporter. What's your gut tell you about what he does? I think he's going to try to go outside the box. Because he's outside. The, he came from outside the box. Yeah. He was not the he was not the chosen candidate. So he, he almost want, might want to go that route himself, you think? He's the first lifelong Republican governor of Georgia in since Reconstruction. So, yeah, and he was the underdog to Casey Cagle. He was never supposed to be the governor. So he, I think he's going to try to go outside the box. They're very proud of – it doesn't get as much attention as they want, um, but they're very proud of their record of, of picking uh, members of the judiciary – and they're very proud of the fact that they've appointed the first black female judges in suburban counties. I my uh, uh, I work with Bill Rankin, and he just wrote a story on that. So um, exactly. Check that out. So check that out on the AJC. So, but that that comes really into play here because because they're they want to highlight the fact that he's surprised even his harshest critics with some of his appointments. And the other one, it's a big big one, was um, John King, the new insurance acting insurance commissioner. He was an unheard of. Right. He was not remotely, I mean, uh, in anyone's shortlist uh, other than Governor Kemp's for the job of insurance commissioner. He was Doraville's police police chief. Um, he has a great, you know, as a, as a, a distinguished uh, background in the military and in law enforcement. But he was not one of those politicians you'd instinctively think, oh, he's, you know, Kemp's going to go pick someone from the state legislature. No. And he's Hispanic. And he's the first Hispanic. And this coming from a, a governor who, you know, made uh, immigration, uh, being tough on immigration, a major campaign issue to the point that many people accused him of immigrant bashing. Yeah. And um, the, pickup, the famous pickup truck. Ad. Yep, exactly. So, so they're keen to highlight that 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 
that side of Brian Kemp. I'm not saying he's going to go outside the box, and because think about it, this is well, this is this is the most this is the most difficult political decision he will have this year. Maybe maybe his entire stint as governor, mm-hmm. um, because ask uh, ask Bobby Kahn and Roy Barnes about the last time a, a Georgia governor had to pick a, a U.S. senator. That was Zell Miller, who promptly <laughs> how'd that work out? Yeah, who promptly s- s- turned on the party, <laughs> is it right? I mean, gave the keynote for the for, for the RNC. A few years later, so this is a very consequential decision for for Governor Kemp. And beyond that, not only that, not only is this super important for Kemp, he'll be on the same ballot as as whoever this is if all goes well for Republicans. So whoever he picks will be on the ballot in twenty twenty with David Perdue and President Trump. So we'll factor into those two super important contests. But then in twenty twenty two, if that Republican wins, they will be on the same ballot as a Kemp versus maybe Stacey Abrams rematch. So this. This not only is important for the party, but this is important for him. There is so there are so many variables in this. I mean, you, you think about turnout from the presidential race. You think about who would line up well. You think about, you know, Georgia's shifting demographics and, and the results from the last election, which showed the suburbs flipping and turning blue. Um, you know, it, it, there it's just going to be a fascinating political year. I mean, as, as a political junkie, I am so excited. She's for ready this. to get a demotion and come back to the I want to. I don't. I, I would love to. Invite me out on the campaign trail come sometime. Come on. <laughs> and think about it, too, from this perspective. Whoever it is is going to have to withstand immense amount of scrutiny. This will be a national campaign. I mean, we'll be all over it. But if it's anything like 2018, there'll be teams of national reporters covering every in and out of this case. We'll have to raise money. We'll have to unify the Republican base. So if he does pick an outsider, it better be an outsider that Republican conservative grassroots folks are comfortable with. But that can also appeal to the suburbs, which they lost um Last time around, correct? It I mean, Gwinnett be, and Cobb, at it least. It might be either or, right? I mean, if, if you go with someone... You think it, it might have to be a choice. Like, yeah. we're going to double down on, on white rural voters, um, or we're going to have somebody who's um, who's going to cross over. If, it's hard to find somebody who crosses over, it is. right? If you go with, a, let's say, a, a more rural lawmaker who's, who's, who's deeply conservative, especially if it's a, a male, it's going to be harder to make that appeal that he'll do great in... in, in, in Cobb County suburbs right now, right? I mean, maybe they could, but I, I kind of see it. There is a there is a potential for crossover, but it could very well be either or. Maximize base turnout, get someone who's very um, in league with Donald Trump and David Perdue and, and Brian Kemp. And by the way, that's how Kemp won. He didn't yep. he didn't play really well in the suburbs. That's he true. lost Gwinnett County. Uh, he only got. He, but he didn't win by much. Yeah, and he didn't win by much. But he <laughs> maximized that rural turnout. Or you go with someone who could maybe give a different face to the Republican Party and broaden that tent. I'll say, in that interview with with Jim Galloway, Isaacson pushed the broader tent angle. Interesting. Well, that's not surprising. I yeah. mean, he, it's that that seems to be his his mo. What about a woman? Is there a female Republican that that they might? Um, they might push. I, I, I haven't heard. I haven't heard of any. Is there anyone in the mix? Yeah, I'm, I'm, among the names are some very familiar ones. Karen Handel. Karen Handel, who, who is, who is, you know, just shy of winning the gubernatorial runoff that you covered way back in 2010. Karen Handel has run for many different races and many different seats at many different times. Yeah, yeah she's a three-time statewide um, contender. She was Secretary right. of State. She won that race. She ran for governor and barely lost in 2010 in the runoff. And she won for Senate and didn't make the runoff, but not by much. And then she ran for sixth district race. She won that one um, and lost last year after she won. So long history, very well known to Georgia Republicans. Um, 
but is also, again, running for six districts, so she'd have to drop out of that race. Another name is Jan Jones. She's the House Speaker Pro Tem. She's one of the, the top-ranking Republicans in the Georgia House. She's She is an Alpharetta Republican, so she has a suburban sort of base already that she's cultivated. And then there's business executives. Um, one, of them, one of the names I keep hearing is Kelly Loeffler, who is uh, a co-owner of the Atlanta Dream, the WNBA team. She's also a CEO of a financial services company. So she, and very well known in business circles. So she's a name that's out there. And she was dabbling. She was kind of flirted with the Senate run back in 2014. So there are some, there are some names. And then there's the names that we might, that, will, that aren't on my list today that I could be thinking, I cannot believe I put that person, I didn't put that person on because in two months that person might be the favorite. Well, whoever he picks for that seat will be the, you know, the odds on favorite going in. But it's not it's not a done deal either going into uh, November 2020, because there are just so many different wins, political wins at play that it's hard to know. And we touched on the Democratic side of the race. But one of the big factors in the Democratic side of the race is that of the three to four candidates who are in the race against Purdue, they're all they're all white candidates at a time when Stacey Abrams showed uh, came this close, came within a whisker of being. The, the nation's first black female governor and Georgia's first black governor and really helped, you know, really turned out a lot of African-American voters who skipped these midterms. So I think we're going to see a lot more African-American candidates who did not want to challenge Purdue because they knew that he would be a very formidable candidate, but could say, see themselves jumping in this race against an unknown. Um, so among those names, Sherry Boston, who's the DeKalb district attorney, Michael Thurman, who's the DeKalb CEO, Maybe Lucy McBath, who, who, who beat Karen Handel in last year's 6th mm-hmm. District race. So all those candidates can make a really strong play. Nakima Williams, the, the, the chairwoman of the Georgia Democratic Party. So all these candidates can make a really strong play. And then we might see a return of the moderates. Uh, Michelle Nunn is seriously considering the race, according to one of, one of her, uh, uh, someone who's very close to her. And Jason Carter is also. And, you know, Today, they'd have more progressive, I'm sure, more liberal platforms. But back in in 2014, they ran kind of firmly to the center on many issues because at that time, that was the Democratic conventional strategy. Yeah. And it'll be interesting. I mean, who depends on who's on the on the presidential ticket, too, for the Democrats. You know, I mean, so much of that could could impact turnout if, if, you know, Joe Biden, who has strong support in the black community, ends up being the candidate that could drive black turnout. And and whoever ends up being the candidate could benefit from that. Kamala Harris, same thing. I mean, there's just it's like a puzzle where you have multiple pieces and it works out different ways, a jigsaw puzzle. And look, if there was there was already Democratic pressure on these presidential candidates to invest heavily in Georgia, you better believe they are now because with there's two Senate, because the fate of, of, of control of the U.S. Senate might well boil down to Georgia in those two seats. So it, it, you'd be hard pressed to find a Democratic presidential nominee, not spend significant time, treasure and resources in Georgia. It's going to we're not going to have a, a single calm moment on TV. It's going to be all political ads. I can't believe the whole time I covered politics, Georgia was always going to be a swing state, going to be a swing state. And now it finally is. And I'm not covering politics anymore. Well, you heard it here first. <laughs> Shannon is not covering politics, but she's thinking about taking a demotion and joining. <laughs> Just for you, Greg. Just for me. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Shannon. Hey, anytime. It was fun. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. 
Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.